Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with very special guest, Eli Dorado. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Eric. So Eli, by, by way of introduction, why don't you talk about how you define your work and the, uh, the questions that you, you keep exploring? Uh, sure. Yeah, that's a little, little challenging, actually, like uh, more, more for me than, than other people, maybe. I am really just obsessed with the idea of growth and how we could get a lot more of it, uh, economic growth. And sort of like I am very interested in sort of diving into like the nitty gritty and the specific reasons that we're not getting it. So, and that means immersing myself in the sort of the technologies that I think could make it possible. And then also uh, thinking a lot about the barriers that are, are making it not, not happen. And a lot of those are in the policy space. So I work at a policy research center at Utah State University called Center for Growth and Opportunity. And I just basically try to chip away at, uh, at those barriers and try to bring them down. And you recently, in the past couple of months, had a, a viral blog post uh, talking about uh, where, where you see uh, technology going in, in, in the 2020s. Why don't, why don't you unpack that that post a little bit, and and also let's let's talk about the the responses to it and how your thoughts have evolved since writing it. Uh, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, the background on this is like the stagnation that we've had over the last uh, 50 years, right? So uh, my PhD advisor Tyler Callen uh, wrote a uh, book called The Great Stagnation. And, uh, and I'm very much like building off of like his, his worldview on this. And we've had that basically slow, uh, total factor productivity growth, which is kind of the, the metric that we look at, uh, for the last 50 years. And so the question is like, could we, could we get out of that? Is, is there, is there a way forward? And there's a bunch of like smart, uh, friends of mine that are, are like, yeah, you know, like we're definitely gonna, this, like the roaring twenties are coming. And so I just wanted to take a sort of look. Uh, without prejudging the answer to that question, just take a look at at sort of the different different technological domains that to be uh, to watch, right? Um, and so, kind of the the a handful that I'm really interested in are like biotech and health. I think that there's some interesting stuff going on there. Uh, energy, you know, transportation and space. Um, so, in in all of those different areas, there's a um, there's some really interesting things going on and, you know, we're also some barriers. And so kind of trying to look at, at those different areas and figure out how to, how to make things, you know, what the, the post is really about, like, what are, what am I watching and what, what are the opportunities? And, and before, before we get into that, I, I want to zoom out for, and, and talk about one of your goals or your, your fondest, which uh, you say in your website is that GDP per capita reaches 200 K by, by 2050 for sort of the, the uninitiated, so, so to speak, in, why is this so important? What have you found sort of the best way to describe to, you know, normies <laughs> or people who are not as familiar as to w- why this is so groundbreaking? Because it, it doesn't sort of capture the heartstrings in, in, a, in, a, in the way it should. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I go back to like when I was like a, like a nine-year-old boy and like all I wanted for Christmas was the World Almanac, right? So like I, I actually like wanted this like book of statistics and and so on to like be able to look at, you know, I, and I would I would like plot out like what, the growth, what the GDP statistics were like over time per capita and stuff and like plot out, okay, by the time I am a uh, 40 year old man, like this is going to be my standard of living. Right. And so, so for me, it's just, this is, this is just, I don't think it, I don't think it's normal at all. I think it's, it's uh, there's just been a, like a weird, a weird interest, but the, the way I would try to describe it to a normal person is just like GDP is almost everything that we care about, right? Like there's a few things that are, you know, that we care about, like that the the quality of the environment or like, you know, having having good relationships with with friends and stuff that aren't captured in GDP. But quite an awful lot is capt is captured in GDP. And, you know, in, in terms of, you know, our, our standard of living or the, the quality of the healthcare that we get, um, the, you know, the the opportunities to uh, have cool experiences in life, you know, all, all of that is captured up in, in GDP. It's just like one number that that summarizes all of that in a in a sort of like very salient way. And uh, you know, GDP per capita, you know, 200k is like if we did about four percent growth for the next 30 years, uh, that's what we'd get. And you know, like basically, like nobody in the U.S. would be poor. 
right? If we did this, right? Like everyone, everyone's like wealthy by today's standards. So it'd be amazing. And why do you think people don't fully get this or fully appreciate this? Or what, what's the bottleneck for more people understanding this? I think people are, are mainly focused on their own lives, right? Like, uh, like in sort of like a very near term, like, oh, I had a fight with my boss or, or, you know, like, you know, my, oh, my, my sister's really annoying me or, you know, like, it, it's, it's just so, um, it's such a, a high level concept. And, a, you know, especially if you're thinking about, you know, the way it grows over decades, right? It's just, it's so abstract and not very tangible to a lot of people. Yeah. So let's get into some of uh, some some of your ideas. You, you mentioned that uh, scientific breakthroughs alone are not enough to drive an end to the great stagnation. Why is that the case? It's really interesting because I'm I'm like really optimistic about the capabilities of humans to like working together to make up ma- amazing discoveries, and I've actually become like a little bit pessimistic about our ability to translate them into products because that's what you need to drive GDP, right? The gross domestic product it needs to be a product. It needs to be adopted at scale. It needs to be used, right? And so there's, I think there's a lot of people, you know, including in the sort of like techno optimism category that that I would identify with, who do a lot of like look at a lot of science porn, and 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 just like tweet out like headlines of amazing discoveries, and you know, like you, you see a lot of those, uh, you know, I think very very often, especially in in biotech um, or in biology, where it's like, wow, biology in the lab is amazing. We are doing incredible things. And then you think about like how long it takes for those to like work through the pipeline and become a product that people can use at scale that can improve their lives. It, it you know it can take a long time. Like CRISPR was discovered in 2012. We've awarded a Nobel Prize for it, and you know still no CRISPR product. I can't go to the CRISPR store and and get anything done to me. I can't like we can't even we don't even have any approved treatments for diseases um, that have, you know, gone their way through the approval uh, approval process yet. So, so it's really that, that step. And there's a lot of people in, in my community that are, are working on ideas for how we can speed up science and make science better and improve science institutions. And I support their work hundred percent, but we also need to think about like, why are we, what, why is the bottle, why is there a bottleneck from discover doing the basic science to like productizing the discovery in a way that people can use. And, and is there more to understanding that than it's, it's just really hard or, or are there things that would make it easier or, or uh, a bit more about what it is? I think it's, I think it's like very contingent on, um, on the industry or the, like the specific discovery and so on. Like there's, there, there's things like not only like, are they not new discoveries, but like, right. So I, I spent a few years uh, as the first policy hire at uh, boom supersonic. And like, we know that, that is possible, right? That is a that is a product that existed and it's now gone away. And it, and it is really hard to build a new supersonic jet. And uh, and 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 uh, you know, hundred percent respect to everyone trying and 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 still working on it. It's super hard. Um, a lot of it's regulatory. A lot of it's like environmental standards have, you know, our, our expectations have have increased uh, around that. So it, it, I think it's very um, dependent on the industry, right? And it's like in biotech, it's more about like what standards the regulators require, you know, and a lot of like infrastructure stuff, it's, you know, the sort of the paperwork that's involved going into it, et cetera. I don't think there's a unified answer, but the answer often ends up being very boring, right? Like it's, it's like procurement policy and permitting policy is like, like super important, but like also very boring. We were talking about before this podcast about Robert Gordon and you know the, the broader thesis of you know progress has uh, economic growth has, has slowed down. The, you know Patrick Carlson, of course, and, and Tyler Cowen had this piece, or Michael Nielsen is 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 science slowing down. And uh, Jose uh, Luis Ricon says that's it's it's an impossible question. We have to look sort of field by field and evaluate you know where are we making process progress, where are we not. And I think he says. You know, we're not making progress in physics, for example. We are in 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 in, in bio. Where do you stand on sort of that those those macro questions? I mean, I, my view is, for the most part, uh, you can boil a lot of it down to GDP, right? So, so where I would differ with like Jose Luis is like he's looking at like the actual science breakthroughs, and I I'm thinking a lot of it about in terms of how do those breakthroughs translate into effect on on human lives, and and we have a metric for if it 
if it's if it's breaking through and affecting human lives, and that's you know GDP or or total factor productivity. So I think that you can like sort of aggregate that and 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 help figure it out. On Robert Gordon, you know, he had, so he, his idea was you know you had this these like five great inventions in the late 1800s that took a while to sort of like ramp up in terms of their scale. Uh, and then from 1920 to 1970, they produced this like unrepeatable spasm of like really rapid growth, 2% TFP growth per year on average. Uh, and then they kind of trickled out in, in 1970 and it's going to take a while for us to, to get that again. You know, if I look at the world, I see so many boneheaded things that we're doing that, you know, slow productivity <laughs> growth, that, that, that doesn't seem very convincing to me because, you know, we like housing is such a huge issue. We know how housing can be more productive, right? We, we, it's like, literally, it's just build denser. Like it doesn't take a PhD in economics to say like build more housing, the, the, uh, the price will fall, you know, you know, so I don't, I'm not so convinced by the sort of the reasoning that Gordon has for why we're slowing down. Although he's a very good and careful empirical economist and, and, you know, I think he's, he's done important work on documenting the, the past inventions, but I just, I don't think his reason for the current stagnation is quite right. And, and, and one of those main reasons is, is low hanging fruit. Yeah. So he would say like, there's these five great inventions are, are spent, right? Like we've, we've gone through them all, right? There's no, like we've had like one great invention in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, which is, you know, all the IT stuff. And that's just really not enough to drive really rapid growth. And so we, you know, you know, I, I think that there's like more on the horizon, more great inventions, um, but also just the whole ing- great invention framework seems to be wrong because there's so like nuclear costs, you know, six times as much in the U.S. as in South Korea, right? It's not like there's no there's no fundamental breakthrough that's needed to drive lower nuclear costs. It's it's like a regulatory and cultural thing. Yeah. How would you rank the sort of top five boneheaded thing? You mentioned nuclear, you mentioned housing. What, what are others that, that come to mind? Well, because I worked in supersonics for many years, like the fact that like we have a speed limit rather than a noise standard for sonic boom, uh, that's like pretty boneheaded. Oh, let's see. I mean, like, look at like the way we do drug approvals in this country. I think like with the, the, with the, think about like this pandemic and how long it took FDA to approve it, you know, both the vaccines, but also, you know, initially like a year ago the um the lab developed tests for like whether or not you had covid right so and that was with like total scrutiny that like the world the eyes of the us and 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 of the world were on them and they still like delayed it right and so you have to think like they're completely indifferent to killing people through type 2 errors they you know they don't seem to care about that so so i think the way we do drug approvals is like another massive one yeah and i want to go into that but first i want to zoom out because you know, we talk about how much economic growth we've experienced and how much it's, it's changed our lives. And yet there are, you know, wide swaths of this country that are sort of reminiscing for, for times of old where, where it was, you know, there was more job security and it seemed that things were just easier to, to afford. Are the, to what extent are those people either incorrect or, um, or to what extent is an appropriate response? Yes, but that's, that's because, um, of increased regulation in housing, healthcare, and education. And if you took those three things, then that that would be you know most of their most of their costs and and their lives would be very different. What, what would you say to? Well, I, I would say it's like two very different things that to think about. Is one is like the levels of economic welfare, and the other is the the deriv- first deriv- time derivative, right? The rate of growth, right? And so in the past, we had a, an era with much lower levels of economic development, like we were poorer right? But much faster growth. So people felt really good when the the rate of growth was going up, even though the levels were lower, right? And so I think what it shows is it really matters that that, that you, you sustain long-term economic growth, that you don't just like, like reach some level and then like stop, cut it off. I, you know, one way I think about this is you know, we've, we've seen in, in politics and so on, like a lot of zero-sum thinking, like a lot of populism, a lot of that stuff. It's like because we have a zero-sum economy, right? An economy that doesn't grow is a zero-sum economy. The only way you can get richer is if somebody else gets poorer. Um, and so it's really important to uh, maintain that economic growth uh, over, over a long period of time, uh, you know, basically indefinitely, so that, so that we don't revert to that, um, that kind of thinking. 
And I think there is evidence that almost, you know, almost all of the oh, oh, the angst, of the economic angst that people feel, almost all of that is driven by housing, right? right. So housing is like really, really like the original policy sin um, that that has driven, you know, you know, basically driven our country insane. And the original sin, are you referring to sort of like Bill Clinton stuff or just like encourage everyone to get a house? Or... No, no, I, I think it's, I think it's like, I think it's a lot of zoning, like, like, you know, basically like exclusionary stuff, like, like we've, we've, we've raised the price of how of living in sort of the most productive parts of the country so much that, that it's basically uh, hard to get ahead. Yeah. But it, just to grill into, it, has the cost of living risen relative to income? Like, do we have stats on, on that in terms of just like the average person's, you know, mi- mi- middle America's uh, ability to get by? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this is um, captured in inflation statistics. So we, you know, we, we are, you know, sort of like getting a little bit better uh, every year in terms of, you know, GDP, real GDP per capita, right? So, um, so we are, we are wealthier than we were uh, 50 years ago, wealthier than we were 30 years ago, wealthier than we were 20 years ago, et cetera. And, and um, it's just a question about, is it growing fast enough? Right. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're, Growing at one percent a year versus three percent a year, you really feel that difference when you take it, extend it several decades. Yeah, and so so we're basically saying is that anyone who's wishing for an era of you know twenty years ago or five years ago is even in the middle America is just kind of confused because they're just not seeing growth f- rise fast enough, but it has risen relative to where they were and relative to their their costs um, rising. They may not be confused in the sense of you know they they may be talking about what might've appealed to them about the past era was the rapid rate of growth. And like, they are right in the sense that we don't have that. Right. You know, and, and, and so I, I I wouldn't, but they they don't, they're just, they think they're, 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 they're describing a feeling that they have about the economy today and their, their feeling is right. Yeah. But I think they also say it was was just easier to afford, you know, a, a decent standard. It was easier to get a house. It was easier to get an education. It was easier to, you know, yeah. So a lot of, you know, a lot of that is correct. Of course, we've we have like much better, higher quality healthcare today. We have you know much better cars, etc. And so, if you if you do all the adjustment, you know, I, I think that like BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that does like the inflation adjust- adjustments, like they do a good job, yeah. right? And so, so like quality of life in a sort of like an objective, like static sense, is higher today than it was then. But people still felt better then because their life was on a better trajectory. Yeah, and and. To what extent, like, are housing, healthcare, and education, like, what percentage of costs do they represent, uh, 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 or like, or what are the other, you know, big costs that are not fa- factored in there that that just crush people? Yeah, so I think housing and uh, healthcare together are about like thirty-four or something percent of GDP. So like, just wow. massive, right? Like, like, uh, you know, healthcare is something like seventeen point seven uh, last year, last I checked, and and housing, you know, if you count all the construction plus the sort of imputed rent it's, it's it's quite high as well so it's it's you know basically over a third um are just those two sectors that have been utterly stagnating and then the funny thing about you know these numbers is that um you can think about it in terms of relative productivity by sector so the sectors that have the lowest productivity um growth they tend to grow as a chunk of the overall gdp right so like the fact that if if housing um if housing were like tvs Right, it would drop in costs. It would have dropped in costs by like orders of magnitude over the last few decades, and like we would spend all next to nothing on housing, right? So it would be it would become less important as a as a sector. Yeah, the um that, that makes sense. I, w- I want to transition into some of the other topics that you get into in, in, in your piece. Let's um I w- let's start with biology. I, w- I want you to unpack th- th- this statement from your piece. Biology is proceeding faster than medical productivity because of a lot of the wonderful discoveries are not being translated into approved treatments and products at a decent rate. Let's salute and cheer for the discoveries, but spare many thoughts for the entrepreneurs trying to bring treatments to market. Can you expand on that? Sure. Yeah. I think that the best example is, is CRISPR. That's, you know, such a, such a breakthrough. Like we've actually figured out how to edit the genome, but you know, eight years, nine years later, it's still no product, still no treatment. So it's actually really hard in the current regulatory environment to shepherd a you know, a drug or a medical discovery all the way through the process, uh, especially if it is a, um, you know, it's a chemical that people are going to be ingesting. So super, super challenging to to do that. And 
much harder in some ways than the <laughs> the fundamental science, which you know we all love and, and want to share, and, and and rightfully so. But um, it's the the entrepreneurs have the harder job, I think. So when we talk about mRNA proteins, biotech, longevity, what's uh, what's missing from the narrative here? What are we ignoring that we should be paying attention to, or, or vice versa? I think the the biggest thing that everybody's missing is how fundamental proteins are. Like proteins are what makes you alive, right? Like proteins do everything in, that matters in your body, right? And 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 that's what unites like a lot of the recent breakthroughs. It, so mRNA is basically it's a technology that lets you manufacture arbitrary proteins in your own cells. So it's like you, you inject some messenger RNA, your cell like reads those, right? It's like a very computery idea, but the cell, the ribosome like reads those in as instructions and like produces what it says. And it, and, you know, hundreds or thousands of copies per, per RNA, mRNA molecule, right? So we, so we have a way to make proteins arbitrarily, like the protein folding that, um, the AlphaFold or DeepMind did last year, like that is just such a huge breakthrough in our understanding about of, of proteins, our ability to reason about them. And so, you know, you put those together and like spin it out a few years into the future, like we're going to be able to design proteins that are not natural, right? That, that, <laughs> that do new things and we're going to be able to make them and we're going to be able to use CRISPR to like stitch them into our genome if we want to. And it's, it's just such a, it's, it's such a huge breakthrough because evolution doesn't give us the proteins that we need to live, you know, to 120 years old. It doesn't give us the proteins that that clear plaque from our veins, right, or our arteries. It doesn't give us the proteins that clear plaque from our, our nerves uh, that prevent Alzheimer's, right? It doesn't uh, give us the proteins to rejuvenate ourselves. Why? Because it doesn't help at all with evolutionary fitness, the ability to reproduce. And so evolution has failed to give us the proteins that we need to do what we want to do now, which is live a long, healthy lives. So proteins are, are just so, so fundamental to all of biology. If we master them, right. We can, we can sort of, you know, we can become like gods, right? Like it's, 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 it's kind of an intense thing. And then the other amazing thing about proteins is that they're basically molecular on a molecular level. They're basically like machines, right? They, there are drive shafts. There are, Cable, there's cabling, there's um, conveyor belts, and you know all of these components exist today as as proteins. And you know nanotechnologists like Eric Drexler have argued like we can use this to bootstrap sort of like nano, like non non biological nano machines, right? Which, so um, the ability to do atomically precise manufacturing and so on, like that's all going to come out of like this this strain of of work on proteins. So it's super, super fundamental to, I think, the future is, is mastering proteins. That's fascinating. L- let's transition into geothermal energy, uh, where you've written quite a bit about. Why is this better than wind and solar? And what are the geopolitical implications of America becoming uh, energy independent? Um, it's better than geothermal is better than wind and solar because it's like better quality energy, right? It's, it's available 24-7 without regard to, you know, where, where the sun is in the sky or where, you know, if there's clouds or whether the wind is blowing. And the thing to remember about, about the electricity grid is that it's got to remain in complete supply demand balance every second of every day. Uh, so the exact same number of like electrons like going on as off. So it's, it's really quite a, a hard thing to balance. And especially if you're relying on energy sources that are so intermittent, right? The wind can literally stop blowing one minute. And it's like, oh, you got to make that up. So, you know, geothermal is just much higher quality in terms of the resource it provides. But then I think what's, it's such a tiny niche today, uh, but there are startups now working on uh, advanced forms of geothermal that are super scalable and that essentially could be like anywhere in the country. Uh, You, if you drill deep enough in the ground, there's going to be heat uh, and you, you tap that resource. Um, you know, the, like the center of the earth is like as hot as the surface of the sun, right? 6,000 degrees Celsius. And, and I think, um, scientists have estimated that if you drill down, if you talk about like the amount of heat energy that's trapped between the surface and 10 kilometers down, so not that far down, 10 kilometers and the surface, it's 50,000 times as much energy as all our fossil fuel reserves. So like, it's just a massive amount of energy enough to do 
everything we might want to do as a species. It's, it's like being replenished at like twice the rate of our primary energy consumption. So it's like never going to run out. It'll last for billions of years. Like earth will boil, like the, 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 the oceans will boil before it goes away. And, and so it's never going to run out. And if we like sort of master this idea of, you know, drilling down, like creating a closed loop, um, being able to place these literally anywhere, like underneath Manhattan, if we, if we want to, like that, that's going to drive an era of energy abundance, right? Where, where, we, where we don't, you know, over the last 30 years, we have done more with less, right? We use less energy today than we did in the late 1970s. I'm like, let's try doing more with more for a while. It's going to be, uh, be really awesome to, to not try to conserve energy and just think about, well, what if I, what if I tripled my energy? What, could, what amazing thing could I do? And no one's thinking that way right now. The geo- geopolitical point that uh, you asked about, I think, it, I think it's interesting to, to think these things through because energy is still very scarce in, in many parts of the world, uh, notably East Asia. So like China has to import a lot of its energy from the Middle East. And so if you think about U.S. foreign policy and the way that we have uh, situated ourselves, um, we have allied essentially with Saudi Arabia as a sort of, you know, distasteful way of, of, of uh, supporting stability in the Middle East. And, if, you know, as we become get to energy abundance in the U.S., we're, we are already technically, I think, uh, energy independent. Uh, we have more, more net exports than imports. But as that compounds and, and, and gets even more lopsided, we're going to be like, well, why are we partnering with the Saudis again? Like, like they're, they literally dismember journalists. Let's, let's not do that. And that could, de- I think that could be very destabilizing for the Middle East and, you know, put a lot of, uh, you know, hamper, hamper oil exports from the Middle East, which of course then affects Asia and, and by extension, the rest of the world. So it's definitely an interesting uh, chain of events to watch and to, to see if, if, if that plays out. Yeah. And, and so on the geothermal side, why isn't it universally, uh, you know, popular? Like what are the, the best critiques or, or concerns about it? I, I think it, it's not popular I and mean, it's mainly ignorance. Like this is like super new tech that I'm talking about. Right. Uh, so, so basically I think that a lot of it's being accelerated now by the pandemic, by the fact that oil prices are really low, that oil companies have had to lay off a lot of drilling experts. And a lot of people are sort of pivoting uh, from that oil and gas sector and thinking a lot about like, you know, all the superpowers that they've developed in the shale revolution, right? To, to engineer the subsurface. They're taking those and now looking at, well, how can we apply them in new ways in interesting ways? And they're sort of, you know, converging on uh, some of these ideas behind closed loop geothermal. And, it, and it's just super new. It, it, geothermal has historically been a tiny, tiny niche, right? Like less than 1% of US electricity generation. And so to come along and say, well, actually we figured this out and you know, it could be like 70%, uh, you know, within, within 20 years or 30 years, that's going to take people a while to process, I think. That, that makes sense. Um, and then let's say we're into, in, into space. And you also talk about why you're so excited about Starship. Talk, talk about both, both those things and, and, and why you're so excited. Well, Starship is just fascinating. Uh, if, if, you, if you kind of understand the history of launch costs and so on. So the way that we've launched rockets in the past, of course, has, has been just exorbitantly expensive, right? The, the space shuttle costs like 60 something thousand dollars per kilogram in today's dollars to get stuff into space. And then, and that retired in about 2011, there's been other um, launch companies that have come along to serve like the U S uh, government uh, as, as a launch customer. And because the U S government only launches on U S companies, like they've had this uh, sort of monopoly and, and they've gotten very fat and happy on pretty expensive launch prices, you know, 10,000 or more per kilogram uh, to space. And SpaceX comes along first with the Falcon 9, which is like a 4X cost reduction over, over those other companies and, and just sort of like eats their lunch, right? And today the Falcon 9 launches two thirds of the payload to orbit of the world, right? Uh, so just, just that one rocket. And then Elon's coming along with this Starship program and he's like, we're going to get 200x better than Falcon 9, like 200x, like two orders of magnitude better than the rocket that just ate everybody's lunch. 
in terms of launch costs. It's just staggering. Um, like you're going to be able to launch, you know, for $10 a kilogram, you're going to be able to, you know, launch people who just want to go. You're going to be able to launch, uh, you know, industrial stuff into space. I mean, like for, forget just thinking about, you know, so far satellites have been communications and earth observation, like pictures. And we're going to be able to do a lot more. We're going to be able to put stuff in space, uh, bring it back down. We're going to be able to um, do low low uh, low gravity manufacturing. We're going to be able to um, mine. You know, at, at some point, not, probably not in the next ten years, but but not too too far away, right? You're going to be able to mine stuff in space, like bring it back to orbit, like use it there, and then go, going to the moon is uh, is also super important, right? I, I'm super enamored of the idea of like putting a lunar telescope array on, on the far side of the moon. Uh, I think that's like a super interesting scientific idea. Um, and then of course, uh, going to Mars, it, you know, like Elon's vision of like making a humanity a multi-planetary species is so fundamental to everything he does, right? That's like, that's how you like you interpret Elon is like everything he does is about Mars. Uh, the electric vehicles is like, well, we're going to probably we can't use internal combustion engine on, on Mars. The boring companies like, well, we're going to need underground stuff on Mars. So, and, and Starship is, is the vehicle that's going to get us to Mars. You know, the, the only way you're going to be able to do a sort of like mass colonization is to get something, you know, quite a lot like Starship. It's, it's, it's just like a revolution that's happening like right before our eyes. And like most people aren't even watching it yet. Yeah. So you, you think uh, 2020 is the is the decade of atoms, huh? I want it to be, right? Like I I think that there is I think there's like this possibility that it is if we don't if you we don't regulate it to death or if we don't uh you know like do all the stuff that we do to slow everything down. Uh, it, I think it's totally possible. My friend John Ludig wrote this piece about you know what happens when tailwinds sort of collapse, and he's basically saying that the internet is mature. His thesis is big. Paris thesis on 2020 is that the internet is maturing pretty soon. Everyone will have cell phones. Uh, you know, people, everything, all commerce will be on, like at some point, you know, we will have tapped that well and we've just been relying on these tailwinds. And so we will need new tailwinds. And he, he's uh, uh, not as confident as you probably on the timeline for some of these newer ones to, to emerge. So let's talk about optimism, pessimism first on, on the twenties. What do you think is the strongest um, sort of, you know, of each argument? I think it's like technologically optimistic, but culturally pessimistic. So I, you know, as I look at these different, uh, these different buckets, right. The number of technical steps that we have to do to like go get from where we are to like a lot of these amazing things, is like pretty small. And it, it, it like, seems like it works in principle. A lot of times it's like, the amount of money that you need to get there is like not that high. Like there's people who want to work on it, et cetera. Right? So it's, it's like the pieces are there. We could do it. The, 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 the argument for pessimism is, you know, we might not do it, right? We, we, we might not do it for, you know, basically reasons of our own choice for, for a whole, whole number of reasons. Uh, we, we just culturally, we seem incapable of, of just looking at a problem and solving it in the more, most tractable, like straightforward way. And I think like climate change is a great example, right? Like we have barely tried to solve climate change, like from an engineering perspective, we've barely tried it. Like, like, like wind and solar uh, energy or like a piece of it, but, and, and electric cars as well. And like th those, um, those are great, but like, that's, that's not the, that's not the full scope of what we could do. Uh, and instead, what we're doing is we're like we're arguing about like whether to raise or lower the status of scientists who tell us that climate change is an important problem, or um, whether to um, raise or lower the status of, you know, uh, in some countries it's automobile companies, right? Like so, like Germany is like, well, we can't lower the status of our automobile companies, and and so like that's like uh, inhibiting action there. So it's, I I see it as a sort of like conflict between. Uh, that sort of like more engineering mindset of like, let's, let's go and solve these problems. And the mindset of, you know, there's, there's a lot of like status competition, culture war, et cetera. And we've got to, we got to first look and see who is raised, who's raises and who's raised and lowered in status before we decide on if a policy is a good idea. And it's like totally backwards. We should look at the material effects of the policy uh, before we, uh, <laughs> before whether and then decide on that basis, whether or not to pursue it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 
another variation of the question could be like, how do we use the fact that people are status driven, like for, for, for our own ends in the sense of like, if we had more wide belief on GDP as, in, I mean, humans love gamifying things. If people really right. bought into the GDP and we could see like how often, how much people contribute to GDP and then, you know, sort of like give status to people who contribute a lot instead of like coming, you know, outside of their house with guillotines, that, that, that it sounds like that could, it seems like that could have a big effect, but it would require us to develop the cultural sort of like tools and knowledge to, to make that, you know, widely understandable and, and high status and cool. Yeah, that would be, I, I think that would be great. It would be super, it sounds super hard to me. Um, yeah. You know, I think. Uh, harder than engineering I, problems. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, harder than engineering problems. Like people are really complex, complex and, yeah. and, and difficult to deal with. You know, like, I think a lot of it is like, uh, may maybe driven by media right like mass media and like you can think about the internet as pouring rocket fuel on like previous mass mass media uh revolutions but you know like like in the 1930s like people were still status conscious but yeah. like they were they were status conscious like on the scale of like their neighborhood or their city or whatever and like the scope of that culture war was small right yeah. so so you didn't you didn't spend a lot of time it, it didn't occupy your thoughts like 24/7 the way the way it does to a lot of people now and so there's still a lot of scope for for growth in that environment but but if if every if every single change is like well what if this what if this policy change like lowers the status of teachers well we can't have that yeah. right like like and and it's not it's not not even discussed what is the best critique of uh, of gdp that you've heard um or even in the sense of like um, best understanding of limitations of GDP that you've heard, and and how do you respond to it? I think that, I think there's a lot of like very fair points made about well, it doesn't capture environmental benefits, right? It doesn't capture a lot of the things that we care about as humans, right? Our, our relationships. Um, you can you could be a super wealthy person, a super productive person, and just be absolutely miserable in your personal life because your marriage is crappy, or you know, like your kids hate you, or whatever. So I think, I think it's like not absolutely everything by any means. Like, like maybe the, the ultimate critique is like the Buddha, like it's, it's all in your head anyway. Like, so you should be able to, you know, you should be able to be uh, happy no matter what. I, you know, I, I sort of just take for granted that we're very, you know, we're wired the way we are, you know, as, as, as primates, you know, so, so GDP still matters. I, I wouldn't actually dispute any of, any of those critiques. Um, I think, I think it's right. It's just, it just GDP is a pretty good proxy and, and covers a lot more than most people would give it credit for. Yeah. We were talking about Robert Gordon again, but before you, you mentioned that you, you're, you're writing your next piece delving into some of his claims. Um, were there other parts of that argument that we didn't get to yet, yet cover in terms of what your next piece is? No, I don't think so. I think we, we, we covered it pretty well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, great inventions, it's proteins, it's, um, it's geothermal, it's culture war, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Where at all do you disagree with, uh, with, with Tyler Cowen? That's a great question. So, uh, so, you know, Tyler is my advisor. I read almost everything he's ever written and, uh, you know, we see eye to eye on a lot of things. You know, I think what's one, 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 one place that's interesting is an interesting difference is, uh, in crypto. I've, I've been following crypto since like 2011, uh, you know, been, been super interested in it. And so he, he kind of was a little bit dismissive of it uh, in the early days. And, and you know, I was, I was like, yeah, this is revolutionary, right? The idea of like a, a centralized, uh, logically centralized, but, but physically decentralized uh, way of, of having a source of truth. I thought it was, I think that's like a data structure that's like super important, like for all time from, from here on out. So we disagreed on that. And I think, uh, you know, he, he's, he's gotten more crypto friendly, but I think even our, our views still are like a little bit apart uh, in terms of like, he's, he's still thinking in terms of Bitcoin is, is probably like gold. And I think much more in terms of the sort of the, the data structures and what you could build off of, on top of it. Brian Kaplan. Oh, I disagree with like tons of stuff that Brian Kaplan uh, <laughs> thinks, but uh, I love him to death. I, I, Brian has a very um, simplistic idea of human nature in terms of um he i think he thinks like we're, we're all more capable of being rational than we than we are in, in a lot of ways um so he would say like you know um if you if you struggle with with you know wanting one thing while also wanting something else that's contradictory like you can make that choice like completely rationally and and uh and and um 
in a straightforward way. So like if you're, if you're an alcoholic and you say you love your kids and you'll give up drinking for your kids and then you're unable to do that, that just shows revealed preference that you don't love your kids or something like that. Like that, that seems, that seems wrong to me. Like, uh, yeah, I think that those, those human struggles are, um, very, very real. And maybe that's like the most fundamental way in which I would disagree with Brian. How about Peter Thiel? Um, zero to one was like transformative for me. Like, uh, you know, I was, I was taking over, uh, the tech policy program at Mercatus around that time that that book came out and sort of read it. And like, that's like part of the reason why I like shifted my research into hard tech. What, what is he wrong about? Well, he's really, uh, I, I think maybe it's, it's uh, again, it's like crypto. Like he's like really into Bitcoin. I'm much more of an Ethereum guy. Uh, that's like, uh, like a very specific thing. He he doesn't say everything he thinks, right? So 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 you don't know what he thinks. He's he's very he's very Straussian. He's very careful about what he says. I would I would hesitate to go be beyond sort of like those like very clear public statements. Yeah, a decade ago you wrote a blog post saying why you're not a libertarian. Do you still feel the same way uh, today? And, and maybe unpack the, the the main argument. Sure. I, so I would say my political views are not exactly the same as they were a decade ago. But at the same time, I would say I'm still not a libertarian. So, um, so that was an idea pushed by uh, Will Wilkinson, who's a friend, on about like uh, basically uh, that libertarians should become more friendly with the left rather than 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 the right. And and um, and you know maybe maybe it's true that I think that libertarians should not be like that closely aligned. <laughs> uh with the right but it's pr- probably also true in my view that like should not be that like that closely aligned with the, the left issue you, you should just like try to like seek uh seek truth and seek like practical uh ways to advance human freedom uh as much as possible and and that's probably probably um probably my my most fundamental view is like kind of like stay out of the like that kind of like political fight uh and and just think about like what's 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 the right way to um to play the system without uh sort of like allegiances to ideology uh to to create the world you want to create what's something else that you've fundamentally cha- changed your mind on you think oh man that's a tough question i mean i i i don't want to sound, sound like i like i'm sure of myself or anything because I, I i think fundamentally like i've just probably maybe it's i've become less sure of, of a lot of things i wrote my dissertation on anarchy Right, so uh, arguing uh, that it was uh, that it was possible for it to be stable, and uh, you know, sort of like a few years before I started working on that, like, I was like, "Oh, that's stupid." Like I had some some friends who were like talking about that, so I, you know, I, I wrote this, uh, you know, started started working on it. I was like, oh, "Okay, there's there's an idea here on like how it could be uh, how it could be stable," and I found it uh, really intellectually engaging. Um, and at the same time, like I didn't come away from it. Um, by the time I was done, like I was like less an anarchist than I was like in the, in, in the middle of it. Right. So like, like sort of convinced, convinced myself, like, like in a million different directions, uh, like sort of went one way, then went another way and then like came out where, where I'm at. And, and the, I think the more you, d- you dive into a lot of these topics, it's like you come away less sure. Have you, have you bought into the state capacity? Um, yeah, Raymond? yeah, I, I think Tyler's right on and that sort of the idea of, you know, you want a government that is, is capable in the domains in which it acts. Right. And like COVID is like a great example. Like you want, want the government to do a good job. Um, a lo- like a lot of my, um, a lot of my other work is, is really focused on that. So I think a lot about uh, permitting and the way that we do um, in, environmental review in this country, um, it, which can take years. It's basically, I, I think it's like an attack on state capacity, right? Like you, you make it so that the federal government has to spend years of like doing paperwork, making sure, holding public meetings, making sure there's like notice and comment periods, et cetera, before they can make like even the simplest decisions. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's basically like you're, you're crushing essentially state capacity in, when you, when you do that. So you did some work with with uh, Sam Hammond, uh, Samuel Hammond. Any uh, immediate interesting disagreements with, with him? Tons of disagreements with Sam. Uh, so so yeah. So Sam uh, worked for, worked with me when he was a ma- back when he was a master student uh, at Mercatus, and uh, you know we worked together for I think a couple of years, uh, and we wrote a paper called "Make America Boom Again" on su- bringing back supersonic flight, 
you know, so Sam like took a, a turn away from a lot of the tech issues and is really focused on, uh, you know, so like social welfare policy and uh, stuff like that. And like for, most fundamentally, like I think like Sam shouldn't have done that. Like Sam should have kept working on tech, right? Like it's more it's like more important in the long run. So maybe that's like the fundamental disagreement. But then just you know, the, it, Sam's really big on social insurance, and I think like social insurance is not insurance, right? Like it's not like it's not. <laughs> conceptually the same thing it's not a good metaphor so maybe that's like uh what i what i disagree with him on now yeah it's interesting you know uh, there are people who say some things like hey we have to build outside of the government like biology for example we have to build institutions outside of the government and sort of you know like disrupt it over, over time and then people say come on like this isn't you know this is the government like we, we need to make it better and work within it and like what do you what do you say to the, to that conversation uh, it's super. I mean, I've, I've argued with Balaji uh, like many times at DM. I, I would say I'm actually maybe in the middle of it, right? Like I, I, I think that building completely outside of the state is not going to work, right? Like you, you rely. Uh, we realistically rely on the state for so much, um, and and probably need to for the foreseeable future. At the same time, um, we should be like looking at ways to limit the state's power through technology, right? You use encryption so that, you know, uh, you know, you can't have a, a genocide or something like that. Like, like that's, that's like worthwhile stuff to do and to, to try to focus on. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that there's people out there like trying to build outside the state. Uh, but I, I think like the short run prospects for that are really, really bad. And, you know, I think, I think it's important to just build, build capacity, build, build competence, uh, in the uh, in a lot of the agencies, and there is actually like a ton of talent in, in a lot of um, in a lot of the government. It's a lot. Of, a lot of times, it's the incentives that are wrong. It's not the it's not even the the talent that is yeah. the problem. Totally. Maybe let's close by talking about uh, the progress studies movement and 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 some of just the, the level of thinking therein. You, you wrote a post about it, you know, a couple of years ago when it when it first sort of was proposed. What have, what have we seen? What's your sort of like, what, what is the state of the movement? What's your sort of perspective on it? Where, where should it go? And one thing I'll just say really quick is it seems that there's like, to our earlier point of making it culturally interesting and, and important, it seems there's two different approaches. One is sort of, I guess, just because we mentioned biology, sort of the, the transhumanist approach, the, the biology approach, sort of like leaning into, you know, longevity and other sort of transcendent, you know, sort of ideas. And then the other is just the, the way I put progress studies in this approach of just like, you know, this gets a billion people out of poverty, or th- this is, is just a very practical, you know, today ramifications. And, and I, I don't know which one is more effective in, in winning hearts and minds in a, in a scalable way, but uh, yeah, I'm curious for your, your perspective. Well, I think it's like amazing that there's a progress studies movement, right? Like, I think it's great that uh, people are, are thinking about it at all. I think it's like interesting to think about like the schisms within the, the uh, uh, progress studies movement. So I think like one is that you have a lot of people who are approaching it primarily on the historical side of like led to progress in the past. And, you know, how can we study, how, what, what are the lessons we can, we can pull from history to, to think about? And then there's other people, and I would put myself more in this camp of like being very forward looking and not looking at the past and, and, and just charging ahead and figuring out how, how in our current situation we can, we can drive things in a productive way. Uh, and then maybe like another sort of, maybe not schism, but like a, a dividing line is people who think a lot about scientific institutions uh, and how to accelerate uh, the face of science versus people who are, again, I would put myself in this latter camp of think about like applying science and commercializing it as, as, as the biggest barrier or the biggest obstacle to progress. So like, you know, try, trying to, um, you know, reform basic, you know, in, reform basic research institutions versus like, oh, man, there's a lot of barriers from getting the science into the hands of consumers or the, the breakthrough into the hands of consumers. I think that's like like another interesting divide. But I just think it's phenomenal that like there's like a, a, a small but growing community of people that um, are interested in these questions at all. And like, it's super fun to have that as like sort of like a, a rallying point. How do you expect it to evolve going forward? 
I don't know. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time uh, <laughs> worrying about how it's going to evolve. I think it will uh, evolve spontaneously. I, I mean, I just, I hope it grows, right? Like that's, that's, that's my, that's my big, yeah. my big, my big uh, concern is that we get more and more people who are interested in improving welfare, right? Improving human, human lives. And that's like, you know, draw as many people as you can into it. And then hopefully we get some, some, uh, some movement. Yeah. And in terms of you going forward, in, in terms of how, how you, you'll want to spend time in the next uh, few years and projects you, you, you'll want to pick up, how do you, how do you foresee? Um, I have, you know, like plenty, like my research list is like uh, super long. Um, you know, I, I am very interested in sort of like the, the actual hands-on tech world as well. Like, uh, so yeah. I'm not going to announce a, a startup, but uh, but uh, I've, I have been thinking about uh, startup ideas and and including like pretty revolutionary ones, and uh, you know we'll we'll see. But uh, for now, my research pipeline is quite long. Awesome. Do you have a request for research or request for project? Like people who are sort of intrigued by the ideas that we've been talking about, uh, things that you might like to see more people pursue. I would like to see people push the limits of like what's allowed under the regulations. So. So one of the things I talked about in the post uh, in the notes on technology in the 2020s post was blood plasma dilution, right? And so what, what's interesting about that is it's it's proven in mice to to rejuvenate tissues and stuff like that. It's also approved for human use, right? So like this is already something that for a whole range of conditions, not not including aging and, and longevity. But for a whole range of other conditions, like you are, you are allowed under the FDA for like a doctor can prescribe this to you. And so like, I want to see people like push the boundaries of, you know, what's allowed under the current system. And like, there is, as far as I can tell, no legal obstacle to you, like opening up a clinic and being like, I'm going to dilute your blood and we're going to have a doctor here to like sign the prescription form and we can do this. Um, And then maybe more generally, I think, I think the tech community is like too afraid of regulatory obstacles so like just like don't you know don't don't decline an investment because of regulatory risk don't like not stop a company because of regulatory risk like these risks they are real but they are often very addressable um so in in you know my experience in 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 basically you know like my first year at boom like we got like the faa to completely reverse their uh interpretation of you know the supersonic uh landing and takeoff noise rules Right. And like no one, no one thought we were going to be able to do that, but it, it, it is doable to do that. So I would, I would say like, don't, don't shy away from regulated spaces because that's where all the interesting action happens. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's a great place to, uh, to, to, to wrap. My guest has been uh, Eli Dorado. If, if you like uh, what you heard today, um, he has, uh, his blog is a fantastic uh, source of, uh, of deep dives and new ideas. Uh, Eli, any other plugs you, you have for our audience? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well, Eli Dorado on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on the episode. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.